This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm pleased to be joined today by Rob Fearson and Seth Weitzman. They are co-authors of From Conflict to Collaboration, which is a co-publication of Roman and Littlefield and AASA. The book is available now and we'll share in the show notes exactly where you can find it. And after you hear our conversation, you definitely might want to check that out. So Seth and Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks Good to be for here, us. Rob. So let's kind of start with the important question here. And and the subtitle of the book is A School Leader's Guide to Unleashing Conflict, Problem-Solving Power. So uh, I'm sure just by hearing the title of the book, it's something that a lot of our listeners will say, okay, I can see why that's important. What inspired you initially? And, and Seth, we can kind of start with you on this one. But when you came about the idea to write the book and started to piece together, you know what, I think there's something here we need to explore. What was that process? Well, it's been a journey. I was a middle school principal in New York for 27 years, actually. And for probably 20 of them, I just thought conflict was part of the job. Everybody has a part of their job that they don't love. But I thought it was something that you had to live with. And and I noticed that as I went to conferences of principals, around the county where I worked and around the state, I saw that a lot of my colleagues felt the same way about it. We got together for lunch or after a conference for dinner, and I listened to people complain about their jobs. They would talk about conflict between teachers or between teachers and administrators or parents and teachers and board members uh, and superintendents were in the mix as well. So it's a common uh, difficulty that we all face. Anyway, one day I was in a bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was looking for books on leadership. 
in the business shelves, actually. And I came across this book called Leading Through Conflict. It's by uh, an author uh, named Mike Mark Gerzon. And uh, I had an epiphany standing right there between the shelves that maybe this isn't just, you know, part of the job that I had to live with. And in fact, I came to learn that there's a body of literature out there, comes from business and engineering and peace studies. So I began to intently study the field of conflict. Rob and I had a lot of discussions about it, and it emerged into this book. Yeah. How about from your uh, and Rob, how did you, you know, obviously you came about this collaboratively, but of course, everybody sort of has their own journey as far as seeing, okay, yes, <laughs> in my experience, I have thought of conflict as X. And in fact, we do need to take a different view on this. Right. So I echo everything Seth said, conflict is the kind of thing that keeps you up at night. But beyond that, for the past number of years, I've either been teaching part-time or full-time in higher education after serving many years as a principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent of schools. And one of the things that I always ask my students in the leadership courses is, what are they most concerned about? And the answer invariably is some aspect of conflict, whether it's dealing with a rowdy faculty meeting, or addressing a personal issue, or, or moving going in front of the, a PTA who's skeptical about some initiative or concerned about some initiative. This is the thing that they are most concerned about. And ironically, it is not studied in courses of preparation, and it's not studied in practitioner professional development either. So it's kind of a, an undercurrent that we all acknowledge, but at the same time, there's very little about it that's done. We send new graduates out into the world of educational leadership, and they don't have the skills and strategies to address it, address conflict. And the same thing happens when, even for veteran practitioners. So it certainly is a timely and important subject. And this timeliness has been made all the more important by the kind of whirlwind that we've been in for the past three years with all kinds of controversy and issues to be uh, address it in schools across the country. In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, it's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than one million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase 
achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. What, what kind of connotation would you want to, to place around that word conflict when we're talking about it in this sense? Because, you know, obviously I think it typically most people, it, it has a negative connotation right. and we're thinking about conflict as something that's right. uncomfortable, it's combative, right. it's a disagreement, it's an right. argument, but right. ultimately it really all it means is that two things are conflicting. And, and if we have a number of people, a different people, diverse people, they're going to have conflicting points of view and perspectives and ways of thinking about things that that's right. just the neutral state of being also sure. if we're thinking about a school leader that's trying to disrupt some sort of status quo that's been ineffective for students you're going to create conflict and that would be a positive thing you know if you right. if you are directly facing head-on something that's not working right yes there are people who are used to that who are going to say I don't like this. <laughs> I'm feeling a lot of conflict, but ultimately I wanted to kind of address the connotation question and then we can go to Rob on this one just to say it doesn't need to be a bad thing, which I think is also part of the process maybe of, of thinking through a new way of looking at it and saying like, we don't want to just let it linger and think it's inevitable that the conflict's just a persistent state of being and we're not doing anything about it. But at the same time, everybody doesn't think about everything the same way and have all the same ideas. Ross, you're, you're absolutely right. Conflict is inevitable in schools. It's inevitable in any organization, and, and particularly in schools where you have so many different stakeholders, so much activity. Schools are very dynamic places, and people always bring their own perspectives and understandings with them. So it's inevitable there's going to be some conflict. Um, I appreciate what you said about conflict because one of the things that we try to convey in our book is to counter the notion that conflict is a bad thing. Because you're right, that the word kind of has bad connotations. And people think that conflict is something that we need to shy away from. School leaders also particularly interpret uh, conflict as a sign of some kind of leadership failure. In other words, if I didn't do something wrong, if I hadn't made this mistake or traveled this path, then we wouldn't have had this conflict. But what we try to do is show that that's not really the approach to take. That conflict, when appropriately managed, can actually lead to organizational growth. It can resolve issues that have been lingering for a long time. It can help us focus our energies on the big pictures, mm -hmm. questions that we need to really address at this time. And it can improve organizational vitality. I mean, when you develop problem-solving skills to address these conflict questions, those skills stay with you. So the next time an issue comes along, you're better equipped to address it. Yeah. yeah, and just yeah. to uh, piggyback on that, we've delineated 10 reasons why conflict is inevitable in schools. And just uh, to highlight a couple of them, of course, the members of a school community all have different roles and interests and values as well. We think that there's one that's kind of obvious, but still needs to maybe it's so obvious that it doesn't come to light often. And that is, you know, the most valued members of our society are children, right? And so parents feel like they know what's best for their children. Educators have made it their life's work to serve children. So, you know, kind of children people feel are worth fighting 
over. And, and I also want to pick up on a very astute statement you made before, and, and that is this idea that disruptors need to kind of put a spark or a shock into an organization. I once worked with a superintendent who said, show me a principal who's beloved by all, and I'll show you a principal who didn't do anything um, on the job. We also think that a one of the manifestations of this is there are leaders, of course, who feel uncomfortable with conflict, and therefore they avoid conflict. I'm sure everybody listening has, has a, at least one principal superintendent in mind when I mention that. But we think that one of the consequences of conflict avoidance is that substantial issues are neglected. And we use as an example, institutional racism, inequities. There's a quote we love from, I, I think it's James Baldwin, who said, not everything that's faced can be solved, but nothing can be solved if it's not faced. Something like that is the quote. I wanted to kind of ask you about this conflict agility language, mm -hmm. because you mentioned that, right, that you delineated these 10 areas of conflict in schools and you used the, there's a phrase early in the book about areas that are fertile ground for discord, right? These spots within schools where there's just a lot of reasons why conflict would arise, right? And the need to talk about it, to use the right terms, to use the right language, and to understand that it's not a bad thing for conflict to occur. It's a bad thing for us to treat it in the wrong way, or even to be conflict avoidant. And it's probably a natural state of being that in a school where everybody is very motivated, mission-driven, trying to do a great job, trying to do a great job in you know, environments where that's not always easy, right? And it's challenging. And like you hear about what was one of the popular things over the course of the pandemic was the last dance documentary about bulls and conflict all the time, right? And not that that, that that team culture is what we should be striving for in schools, but why was it happening? It was happening because everybody there was a high achiever that was super motivated to be the best. And there's friction that comes out with that, right? And while that might look a little different in schools, that is what we expect of our school leaders, our educators. They're not going to be complacent and they're not going to see something that they think, hmm, that's not quite right, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it be. We, we would want them to speak up and say, hey, have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? And now we need to resolve it. So I, I think this conflict agility language that most people may not be familiar with the, the terminology, is kind of a part of getting into that conversation and understanding, okay, what are we talking about here? And how do we begin to, to have the conversations in a way that's moving us through the conflict productively versus just you know trying to shove it off to the side? So we think of this in a kind of twofold manner. One is that there's a role for leadership in this, what we call conflict agility skills, which are the ability to turn to action these understandings about conflict and how to make them, how to solve, how to address them. The second part is kind of an organizational school-wide or district-wide conflict agility approach, which is something that we teach about in the book in terms of particularly in design thinking as a model to use that to solve conflict. So the personal aspect of this is that 
you have to see yourself as an instrument that your reactions, your actions and behaviors as, as a leader really set the tone for the entire school or school district. And that by understanding your own reaction and place in a conflict, you can set a positive direction for whatever comes afterwards. So we talk a lot in the book and we've talked a lot in the, in the workshops we do about uh, understanding your emotionality that emotion is really a driver, a major driver of behavior. And one of the analogies we use or metaphors that we use comes from Chip and Dan Heath, who speak of the elephant and the rider. So the elephant is one's emotions. And think of the size of an elephant, the, the, the power of an elephant. And the rider is your cognitive ability. So think about that in proportion to the elephant. So Step one, or one of the first steps in uh, addressing conflict as a leader is to enable the rider really to assert some direction over that elephant. And uh, once you do that, there's an ability to control the emotional contagion because conflict inev inevitably breeds emotions. And if you can control that emotionality to some extent, you have a better chance of directing the conflict, directing the solution or problem solving process in a positive direction. And then we talk about organizational strategies as well. Right. And those big emotions come when there's high stakes. Right? So, Absolutely. of course, the work we're doing in schools, high stakes uh, and, and a book that you you know, referenced and recommended is this crucial conversations, which is tools for talking when the stakes are high, and which goes back to this, the language that we use, that communication being essential, communication being the way that we are able to express our point of view and address and articulate and clarify the sources of conflict. Um, when we're in a position where we know that we need to create a little bit of conflict, right? For the yes. cause, we need to really clearly communicate. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's why I'm doing it. And it's also, I think, relates to the leader's obligation to be communicative and clearly communicative and create the grounds yes. for resolution and for addressing the challenges that are going on. It's also why conflict so often persists when a certain party in that feels like they're not being given the space to communicate and they're being silenced and that their point of view or the reason why they're feeling a conflict is invalidated. Right. And so, you know, I, I wanted to, to talk Seth about communication and its primary importance here in being really proactive about that. And really getting out there and saying what needs to be said in the right language, right? <laughs> because when the emotions are high and when the stakes are high, saying the wrong things takes it in, in one direction, but being mindful about saying the right things and, and creating an open discourse can move us forward. Yeah. Speaking of getting communication right, Ross, I just want to go backwards mm -hmm. and give the correct, beautiful quote from James Baldwin, he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Right. Um, so, yes, I think that we all know that a lot of conflict emanates from communication issues. And our book is filled with lots of language that can be used. We call it conflict agility, as you've pointed out in conflict situations. I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is the phrase, yes, 
and instead of yes, but. So we're kind of in setting the ground rules for groups or individuals in these controversial situations. That's one that we urge. Another, we talk in our book about the need to kind of normalize conflict because it is not a big deal when we disagree with each other. It's normal, it's natural, and we can end up in a good place after working through our conflicts. So I used to use this phrase in meetings. I'd say, okay, this is where we agree and this is where we disagree and still need to work on that. When you're talking about conflict, certainly words matter. And as Rob pointed out before, as does your emotionality, because the words come when you're prepared, of course, but also when you have that calm. There's a researcher in this field who talks about slowing down and cooling down, kind of taking a breath before you start to communicate. Yeah, and I think a, a cause of a lot of the conflict that's unproductive, that's not really understood and certainly not being uh, addressed is um, that lack of communication. It's the assumptions that the different parties make about one another and mm -hmm. what a, a parent might believe about the school and what the school might believe about the student mm -hmm. and the fact that there's not, there hasn't been that effort to create that clarity. And one of the things that's addressed is that the political climate, right, in the schools today, and a lot of what's happening to me really traces back to, okay, well, if there was traditionally and historically not an effective enough and a proactive enough job of communicating about what is happening, what is being taught, why it's being taught, what we're trying to do, what our purpose and mission and values are in our schools, we've now, allowed others to fill in those blanks with some other set of beliefs, assumptions, POV, whether somebody has told them something or they've right. kind of said, well, if they're not telling us, they must be hiding something, right? right. They, they mm -hmm. mu there must be something that they don't want us to know about because they, right. they're not telling us anything about what's happening. Whereas it's, it's so important to say, look, we know that we're doing great things. We're doing for the right reasons. Um, we know that people would actually, if, if I'm being, putting myself in their shoes, being empathetic to their needs and their desires, they would love to know about this. But if we're not taking that thought process in leadership or just in schools in general, then yeah, there's all of this ambiguity and, and ability for different storylines to populate. That's yeah. so true. I, I think about that often. You know, we wait for a crisis mm -hmm. to communicate those messages as opposed to if it was part of the communication that comes consistently from a school, we wouldn't be on defense, you know, so much as, as we feel we are now. You know, Stephen Covey said it best, seek first to understand, which is also part of the equation. It's the communication that comes forth from us, but also understanding the other person. We also talk about the language that we use. You know, as with any profession, we have our own specialized vocabulary, and we tend to use a lot of jargon. And very often we believe that everybody has the same mindset as we do and understands exactly what we mean. 
there was a study, for example, that was done on social emotional learning, which is certainly a hot topic almost everywhere. And they asked parents, a group of parents, to rank social emotional learning. They ranked it at the bottom and had some distasteful comments about it. When they changed the wording of it and said it's social and emotional and academic learning, the ranking of that item shot way to the top. So it's really a question of how we present things too, and not making the assumption that we understand and, and, and know all about our, our communities. We don't. And it's a constant task of leadership to really be sampling the opinions that are out there, the understandings and the beliefs that are out there. George Bernard Shaw, I think, had a, a quote that said, the greatest failure in communication is the illusion that it, it has occurred. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall, as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in It can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. This is a time to bring up the subject of design thinking, which is a major theme in our book. We borrowed it from the field of engineering, but in the design thinking process, which we believe can be used in these controversial situations, one of the first steps is to get a better understanding of an issue by sympathetically interviewing people, looking at data differently, kind of street data, I think is the name of a book out on this subject. So it begins there, as we've been saying, is this kind of broad and deep understanding of of these controversies that we face and helping others to understand the complexity of schools as well. Yeah, and we can certainly talk more about the design thinking because I, I think it really relates to having that very um, forward-facing orientation toward the challenge and related to the, the Baldwin quote you shared about things can't be changed until they're faced. The word that you specifically use is addressing conflict, right? Rather than right. not resolving, exactly. mediating, right. managing, all right. these other terms that are often used that connote more of either an avoidant mentality toward it or a 
compromise or a diminishment of certain parts or the merits of certain points of view in there versus addressing it head on and saying, okay, I need to understand this. I need to know all the inputs. I need to see where it's all coming from. And then we need to work through it and figure out where are we now and where do we need to be and understand that to, you can turn conflict into understanding and agreement without diluting either of the points of view that are involved in it, right? But that requires being very direct and addressing it and we're, and having a step-by-step -step approach. And then I think also you wouldn't have the illusion, right? Because you knew there was a system and a process right. and it wasn't like, oh, well, we thought we did that. No, we either did it or we didn't. But, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about that addressing point and why that term is so critical here, and then also, you know, how it does fit into that design process of really having a system to work through this and not just kind of letting it be ambiguous. So we struggled a little bit with trying to find the right verb to, for use in our book. And we looked at the literature and anecdotal accounts and it talks about conflict resolution. It, talk, it talks about negotiation. It talks about mediation. It talks about compromise. And none of those things we thought fit because they, as you mentioned, they either wind up with not getting the whole problem out for discussion, or they suggest some kind of imposition of a solution prematurely by leadership. And so we came with this notion of addressing it, which means we don't know where it's going. We really have yet to solve the problem. We first want to identify what's really at the issue. And one of the phrases we use in the book is, in fact, that the issue is often not the issue. So what people present or the, in, the initial presenting problem is sometimes not really very often, not the, the actual problem. There are deeper problems and uh, the value of the work that you get to uncover the deeper problem is difficult. But on the other hand, it makes for a more lasting solution. So behind a lot of these debates on even SEL and things like that are different questions about the role of schools, the role of parenting, uh, what's appropriate in the curriculum, how to teach different kinds of different approaches to teaching. Those are the issues that, that one has to try to uncover before you can actually address them. And then design thinking provides, as you mentioned, provides a structured approach. So there, there, there are ways to do this kind of detective work, define the problem, creatively look for solutions, test them out in a kind of rapid fashion to see if any of them will stick and then ultimately do some of the piloting and testing that we traditionally do in schools. But we, we often skip those earlier problems. And in design thinking also is, is what's called iterative, which means you can go back to a step at any point. You know, maybe you didn't get it right. Maybe you're thinking about solutions and you realize, I don't think I really defined the problem. So you can start it, you go back and do some more detective work. And that's the bonus here is that when you do that, when people learn that process, and it becomes part of the way that the school does its business, it, it provides building capacity for any future issue that comes up. How do you feel, uh, or Seth, that, that that design thinking approach feels to the participants that are not used to it, maybe, and are not used to using it in this context, at least, and maybe a little skeptical and saying, the, the, does this fit? This is kind of an engineering way of looking at things. And we're talking about our environment, our culture, and our social interaction. Once they start to engage with it, how do they perceive it? How would they feel? How would they proceed from there? Yeah. 
you know, the engineering connection is that before you solve a problem, you have to figure out what the problem is and how you define the problem is the starting point. I think in a lot of ways, it, it's not our natural style in education. I was an administrator, I mentioned, for 27 years. I love a quick fix as much as the next mm -hmm. person does. This process that we're talking about with design thinking in fully understanding, defining state, one stage is ideating, which is brainstorming a great variety of possible solutions. Uh, it's time consuming. And I think that a lot of us administrators, I can include myself, we're task oriented. So faced with a problem, let's solve it quickly because we have a hundred more that we have to get to. Another um, way that it's kind of anathema to the way we often operate in education is at the end, um, how many committees have you served on well, a curriculum development committee, for example, when it's over, we all, you know, shake hands and nod to each other and we'll say, you know, we'll see you sometime next year. And what we learn from design thinking, in fact, is that there needs to be constant formative assessment and reevaluation of any new initiative. In fact, they call it a prototype. And after that, we may need to go back and brainstorm different solutions. We may need to go back to the define stage and get a better understanding of what the problem might be. So it, it's not a case where a committee disbands and says goodbye, their work is over once they've come up with a plan, but there's this constant reassessment that needs to take place. And, and a point that we read somewhere in our research before the book is that it leads to people butting heads when a new math committee, for example, um, comes up with a proposal for all time, as opposed to this approach in design thinking, which is to say, you know what, let's try it. This is just a pilot. We're going to constantly reevaluate and see how well it's working. We'll make adjustments accordingly as we go along. It feels like maybe you can give it a try and accept it as opposed to thud. I place the new six inch thick math curriculum on your desk. Now do it. That also would seem that the success and effectiveness of the process would also be contingent on whoever's initiating it authentically wanting to know what the problem is right and being open to that coming out having the humility to understand that maybe they're attributing to it or or not or that at the very least it may be something that's been out of their line of sight right and it could surface some things that are challenged to work through but uh, on the vice versa, if that kind of a environment isn't created, then a lot, a lot of the stuff just doesn't come up. People don't surface it. It's still there and it's causing other problems, right? That we may not identify immediately as conflict, but it's like, if I'm a teacher and I'm feeling 
in conflict with the school in which I'm working and I choose to go work somewhere else, right. that was a form of conflict and it was internal because nobody actually tried to figure out what was happening and work through it. Right, and, so, and done well, I'm sorry, Rob, go ahead. It's, it's fine, I want to just say that the process itself, by virtue of the fact that everybody is participating at a, at a substantial level, breeds a sense of ownership. So people feel that they are involved in not only identifying the problem, but in drafting solutions and having an investment and seeing if those solutions work. So the, it's intense and it's not something that you just can say, okay, we're going to meet for half an hour and we're done. But on the other hand, what you come out of it with is not a kind of superficial consensus, but a deep understanding and a commitment to making it work. Yeah, and the uh, done well, this kind of approach to collaborative problem solving, I think has an opportunity to change the culture of a school. And I'll tell you my own experience with it. I mentioned how this all started in, the, in a bookstore. But one of my first steps as a school principal in trying this out was I would start many faculty meetings with, I called it for the good of the community. And I encouraged teachers uh, for the first 10 minutes of the meeting to uh, raise community issues. They had to be common problems, not your own personal or department issue. Um, uh, so for example, looking outside my window, it's spring in New York. And although I'm retired now, I'm sympathetic to probably what's going on in middle schools, which is spring has sprung and 11, 12, 13 year olders react to the weather outside. And we see that in the hallways of the school. So a uh, teacher in an April faculty meeting might stand up and say, you know, spring has sprung and Look at what's going on in the hallways of the school. And right there for 10 minutes, we would try to collaboratively problem solve and everybody had to have a stake in the solution. If we couldn't solve it, then we would refer to a committee to continue the work and then get back to the rest of the faculty. Anyway, by taking steps like the one I described, some years later, I wanted the school to consider capstone projects, a form of inquiry learning that really required teachers to re-examine their role in the classroom and the nature of teaching and learning. And I found that teachers were open to it. We actually developed a uh, really a model uh, capstone project uh, for middle school. And, but I don't believe it would have been possible had we not begun with for the good of the community and kind of figured out how we were going to work through differences that we have in a way that everybody was heard and everybody felt that they could be part of the ultimate plan that we came up with. Yeah. Rob, what are some of the impacts of unaddressed conflict in schools if we're, you know, not engaging in these processes? Well, unaddressed conflict doesn't go away. So it festers and it builds. And we talked about the emotional 
part of, of conflict. And certainly those emotions build and they either find outlets in other ways. So you talked about teachers walking away, school administrators walking away, finding a, a more a place that's more amenable to their the thoughts and beliefs and actions. Or it becomes a, a people band together and it becomes disruptive. And that's when you see at times, you know, have a faculty meeting over a seemingly innocent idea. And there becomes a great hubbub about it. And people become very polarized about it because what's happened is that there's something underneath that's been simmering for a long time without addressing. We look at the current landscape, for example, and one of the things that we note is that the problems that are presenting themselves in schools across the country, the conflicts that have erupted across the country are not, first of all, they're not an, uh, atypical. I mean, and schools have gone through waves of conflict like this uh, many times. You can look back to the 1920s and the division over teaching science and particularly evolution. You look at the 50s and 60s and to some extent the 70s with the questions about school integration and those and, and busing and things of that nature. And then we have today. So first of all, recognize that schools have had these conflicts in the past. But also, these are kind of long simmering issues, and they have been there for a while. It's going to take a while to untangle them. It's going to take a while to uncover them and figure out what's really driving the conflict. But in the long run, it's inevitably worth it because you have a stronger school community at, as a whole. You have better skilled leadership, and you have better skills for the school or school district. It, and it will look different case by case, but it, do you in general have a, a recommendation for how we may evaluate or assess or understand whether or not we've effectively addressed a particular conflict or source of conflict and whether it's time to move along, okay, we've, we've done this, or kind of continue iterating on that? One of the parts of the, of the design thinking process is to establish those criteria for de determining success. And success can be very localized. So it's hard for us to generalize because we, this is a school by school case in many instances. But one of the things that we look at here is a scalability. Is it something that goes beyond an individual classroom and can extend uh, and have benefits for others? And the second part of that would be sustainability. How easy is it or how, how important is it and how practical is it to sustain this? Is this something that we can do over a long time uh, and can it continue to re give results over a long time? So those are two of the criteria that we would suggest for any innovation. You're, you're asking a question, Ross, about the end of the process. I'm going to take your question in a different direction and look at the beginning of the process. Um, and one of the strategies in our book um, is uh, to pick the low-hanging fruit, which is first look to solve the problems that are relatively easy to solve. Now, we also point out it becomes problematic if all you're doing is picking the low-hanging Route. And there's lots of different examples of that. There's a process called orbiting. It actually has a name where principal forms a committee and studies a problem to death. The problem goes to the committee to die. But anyway, that's one area that we suggest administrators start, which is those problems that are most amenable to solutions, gives 
the school confidence in this process, and then it, it grows. Excellent. I think as, as we're kind of getting toward the end of our conversation here, I, that would be a great place to go for each of you is as we're thinking about one, what you're addressing in the book and the strategic recommendations you're making for how, how to effectively address conflict. And then also comparing and contrasting that with how conflict is often responded to or typically in some of the ways that have not worked, right? And will continue to not work. Do you each want to maybe highlight one strategy that you're recommending and one that is often used that you would recommend leaving behind? And Seth, we could start with you on that one. That is a good question. I think I would start with, there's lots of strategies in the book. There's probably a hundred different strategies from what we call leadership strategies to design thinking. But it's really the mindset that you bring to problems, to collaborative problem solving and conflict that we think is so essential. We define in the book three styles of leadership. We've covered two of them thus far. The one we prefer is to address conflict. The second is to avoid conflict. The third one is aggression. And we're surprised how often we hear accounts from teachers of uh, school leaders who it's not some, they, there are accounts of school leaders we hear yelling, literally pointing fingers, that kind of aggressive gesture, but also using institutional rewards and punishment as a means of coercion. So you hear in the faculty room, oh, this person, this teacher got the preferred parking space or a better schedule or uh, a higher performance rating at the end of the year. So it's this idea that eschewing avoidance and an aggressive stance but instead walking into these interactions with the realization that, as you said at the outset, conflict can bring us to a better place if it is well managed and that we you know, want to hear more from the other person and gain a better understanding of what the issues might be because it might not be as it's first presented. So it's the thought process that you bring into it and the emotionality, as Rob said before, that's so crucial. Are there any that come to mind for you that you'd like to highlight? I would add on to what Seth has said that what does not work is looking at problem solving in this kind of conflict arena as a solitary endeavor. It's never a one-sided, one person I can impose this solution on uh, a, a significant issue. Uh, these are what we call wicked problems. They defy traditional solutions. They, they're long lasting. And to think that you alone uh, can be the white knight to go out there and solve it is not helpful uh, and not effective. Uh, ultimately, the thing that all of this works to do, whether it's those personal strategies we've suggested or the design thinking kind of approach is they build relationships. And relationships are what 
ultimately will carry the day here. So the personal approach to seek, understand before you speak and, and listen carefully and empathize, it's all well and good, as is the kind of notion that if we all work together through a kind of structured approach that makes sense to people, that relationships will improve, really builds organizational capacity and personal and organizational health. Excellent. Well, listeners, the book is From Conflict to Collaboration, The School Leader's Guide to Unleashing Conflict's Problem-Solving Power. It is available now. We'll put the links below to get that from Roman and Littlefield or on Amazon. Seth and Rob, is there anything else you're working on now or any place you'd like to, to have our listeners check out more? We, we have a Twitter that we only use for things that we think are of great value. We're not, we're not a group that uh, thinks that uh, we have to write something every day. But when we put something on Twitter, it's because we think it will help them with conflict resolution, conflict addressing skills, conflict agility skills, and also teamwork. So that's another facet of our work. And we're hoping in the fall to come out with a conflict newsletter. So we'll develop an email list. And for those who would like to dig deeper, into conflict and form a community. We'll have this newsletter that, as we mentioned, comes out every month. We'll hear from experts in the field of conflict, not just in education, but from business and peace studies as well. We'll examine conflicts that uh, other school leaders are facing and how they addressed them. So we're hoping that it's gonna be a continuous conversation with the concerned administrators. Hey, listeners, and their website is teacheredge.net. So we'll put the link there below. We'll put the link to the Twitter handle and also, as we said, to the book. So make sure to check out all of those resources. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Rob and Seth, for being here. Please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one or visit bepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time? and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.